You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss implies the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. No! Oh my God, no time to turn. And welcome <laughs> to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerds. And we're going to get into some nerdy nerddom, nerd, 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 nerd. With me is my fellow nerds, Cap and Alex from the Something Good For You podcast. Yo, yo. Hey, hey. And we are tracking the uh, the albums, of the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. Blah 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 blah. That's right. And uh, uh, we've we've already gotten some feedback on the on the some of the recent episodes, so yeah. that's been great. So to peel back the curtain, some sometimes we do record these ahead of time to the point where you know maybe an episode that we recorded two episodes ago is finally coming out. So we're getting feedback, maybe a little bit delayed, but seriously, guys, thank you for all the love, criticisms, uh, compliments, and all of the above. We've had some creative <laughs> criticisms over. Especially the in the Ed box. <laughs> hey, uh, we welcome it all. You oh, know? yes. You know, you don't have to agree with us. Our, uh, our main man that made the uh, remix of all my mouth jams, uh, Sir Barry Hannibal, was uh, sorely disappointed at how much you thoroughly shat upon Creatures of the Night. I didn't think we shat on I it. I didn't think I did. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. He said we all three of us were very cranky in that episode. <laughs> there, well, yeah, somebody wrote and said we were cranky. And I said, <laughs> yeah. And I said, I'm only going to get crankier. <laughs> yeah. And now the Animalize episode. Because they didn't even hear Lick It Up yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. Well, you know, the thing is, is listen, okay, we'll get into this a little more yeah, later. Yeah. But now this week we're going to look at the uh, Animalize album cycle. And as I, I think I said in episode, last episode, maybe the one before, Maybe even the one before that we're getting to where Kiss are going to regularly release their album in the fall. So most of this is going to be a you know stretching from the middle of one year to the middle of the next. Right. And that's usually how the cycle works. Now uh, they fall into this. It's sort of a pattern. Um, March seventeenth of nineteen eighty four is the last show with Vinnie Vincent, and he has subsequently released let go or whatever you want to call it. He was never officially hired. So, you, I mean, walks he, away. He just, yeah. you're like, thank <laughs> it's you. It's not invited we're back. No longer, you're no longer needed. We got some great solos out of you. You toured with us for a while. You're done. And now, uh, but then we got the Vinnie Vincent invasion and slaughter and all the great works post kiss in uh, Vinnie Vincent's mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. This is a Kiss episode, not a Benjamin <laughs> episode. This is a, I should have thrown in some. Uh, this is a no time to invade. Yeah, no time to invade. Well, it's All interesting. Podcast. It's interesting to note here. Kiss were once the uh, one for all, all for one band, 
each man it was you know the 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 uh methodology that they liked to champion was each man did his own job it was a four-wheel drive operation every member had an identity every member had his voice every member was part of kiss you know and now with a consistently shifting lineup there seems to be a concentrated effort to maintain the focus on simply the two original members who are in fact the only two members of the band yeah officially as a business as a everything and yeah even the, everything you know anyone else now is an employee of the band up to and including whoever is performing with gene and paul they are not full equal members of the band kiss yep so it's not a band anymore it's a duo mm-hmm. and, even, and even in uh, i feel like what you're about mm-hmm. to say even is and in a lot of cases it's a singular effort with paul because this was the era in which gene was truly kind of yeah we're going to talk about mm -hmm. about that this is this era that we're coming into yep so it seems like gene's already got his eyes on a on a back door out yeah as opposed to a back door yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh throughout looking around i didn't really see a whole lot about mark st john it was more or less like one person recommended him and like in and a fury hired. they were like go get him go get he him was, then. he was recommended by grover jackson who was the guitar builder i was gonna and, say he ended up acquiring Chevelle. he built the jackson randy Rhodes model blah 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 blah. i'm not a big guitar nerd guy i don't know a lot about yeah, this i don't know a lot of that area but, either jackson's um, like the super pointy guitars that are like 100 bucks at uh you know your guitar yeah the and modified that. flying v look yeah. yeah. Well, the original one was for Randy Rhodes, and to me, it's like for Randy Rhodes, it works for him. It's him. It's his. You know, and then it's like anyone else is playing his guitar, like the Paul sense. Stanley, the uh, the original one that he used, like the Love Gun yeah, Tour, the Iceman. Yes. Yeah, and it, that if wasn't even else, that wasn't he didn't design that he no. his, he just customized what they already had, but it's so identifiable by him that anyone else that plays it is gonna it's you're gonna, playing you're the Paul playing Stanley. the Paul Stanley guitar. Um, but this guy, Mark Norton is recommended by Grover Jackson and he's using, I think he's already using the stage name, Mark St. John. I don't think they give him that. I think, uh, with, uh, according to Paul Stanley in his book, he says that, uh, Mark St. John was already uh, uh, walking around with that moniker. And then he comments later on saying like, everybody had to be a saint in the eighties. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And apparently, from what I'm, I can't find a lot of information about this. Like, I don't have any information that they've auditioned anyone else. And apparently, when they, the only thing I found was, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but he auditioned and they were kind of like, mm, no, thanks, but no thanks. And then called him back and said, yeah, come on. Yeah, it feels like they're just, honestly, I feel like there's a lot to that, especially with who winds up replacing him after two and a half shows. Someone else that was already within the fold. It feels like they're just kind of going down the list of, okay, well, our next best would be this. I don't know. All right, well, maybe, okay, well, now I guess we'll go to this. I think time is a factor here, you know, and if they have somebody that seems like he's a professional, you know, got his shit together kind of guy. They're like, oh, okay, okay, yeah. Which shows, which is terrible because that feels like they have a complete ambivalence towards what they're doing. I know they don't, and I know that's not what it is. But it would seem to me, you know, they don't have the time. Time is not a luxury they have. They're in a lot of. they're in a lot of trouble financially. They're seriously in debt. Well, is it ambivalence or desperation? It's desperation. Yeah. They're seriously in debt. The advances from Polygram, which I guess is phonograph, they're not 
tech, I don't know. But anyway, I keep calling the it the record Polygram. label. The label. Yeah. You know, initially when they when they signed that sweet deal in like 1980 or whatever it was we talked about, they yep. got $2 million up front as an advance on each album. But they they didn't recoup that on any of the releases subsequent until they and even when they we talked about them they had to uh renew the redo the record contract because ace left they're still not going to recoup the advances they get which is of course not even i think a tenth of what i don't know my math is not good i say a tenth it's but, it's a fraction of what it's not two million dollars it's not a million dollars it's like maybe a hundred thousand and that's not enough for them to do what they need to do because it's expensive to record an album so carl glickman secures an investment from a bank in kentucky of all places okay <laughs> <laughs> and that bank is looking to get into entertainment financing so this gives them some uh you know a little bit liquidity. of liquidity is that a word liquidity because yeah. by early spring because it says here according to kiss and sell by uh, early spring of uh, 84 their cash flow had completely dried up yeah so this is this wow. is what I, I you know and people i've said this to you like no that they were millionaires they could do whatever they wanted they were kissing they just rolled you sucks so shut up uh, I, okay okay <laughs> you may be right works. but that's not the way i'm reading it the way i'm no. reading it is they're just they're just shuffling from album to album trying to skirt by because it's over lick it up did not save kiss nope but this album ironically does save kiss oh, in a, we'll in discuss a way. that we'll in discuss that okay but at this point before we do anything i need to stop and acknowledge that this isn't kiss anymore <laughs> yeah. and, and, and when i say that it's like okay it's kiss and name but it's like kiss and name only yeah this is a whole new group we mm -hmm. talked about this once you've got they've got two it's a different group with a different approach a different mindset it's a different era and obviously that's going to affect things regardless if it was the four guys original guys or not but outside of that you still have a chemistry that was at play that mm -hmm. isn't at play now so this isn't a new this isn't kiss from the 70s adapting to the 80s this is gene and paul working independent of each other with with surrogates yeah, yeah. It's Big like a, a new band, a new sound, a new vibe. So I have to just examine this as a complete different entity and start examining these albums as they are as individual albums. Well, I'm glad you're doing that because I'm looking at this as the perspective of where they are now. So well, that's going to be that, too... That factors into it for okay, sure. Yeah. But I mean... Well, I'm I was just thinking trying we were going to have two different viewpoints I'm, and that was going to be cool. I'm just trying to have an, uh, an objectivity to this that yeah. I might not otherwise have because if I keep trying to compare this to old kiss i'm gonna shit all over this yes yeah, the comments got to him guys <laughs> it's gonna, well no it's, it's a, it, it, that was a fair criticism i already kind of figured this out uh, when we were doing the lick it up record but right and i meant to bring this up over that but um so and actually it, a, a little bit of a uh, footnote here because uh, i remember running across this i was trying to find it in time it said uh by may 84 mark st john uh had headed of uh, started working on the new kiss record and mark recalled i signed a contract for five years where there was no escape clause interesting but we will soon learn yeah. that's not fully the case. Well, I don't know that that's an escape. I think they probably, I mean, that that gives them the power to terminate. Yeah. It does, just doesn't. Just doesn't give him the power, power to, to terminate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, probably. But I found I that interesting know. that they signed him on for a five-year contract, though. Like, they were reaching that hard. Yeah. Especially because they never got Vinny to sign a contract. Well, they were wanting him to. Yeah. But Vinny wanted, obviously, to be a full Yeah, he wanted to be member. equal partners. Yeah. And he deserved it. 
I think I think the whole I think the whole history of Kiss would have altered completely. Well, would, think, it, would he have? Because Eric didn't have equal partnership, and he would have had seniority he over. He, he wasn't asking he for it, but he didn't bring to the table what Vinny brought to the table. And that's well, a whole, should that be the dictating factor? Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we touched on on the Lick It Up episode. You're I mean, right. I mean, no, I'm not, I'm discounting the quality or or the whatever you want to however you want to gauge it but what Vinny brought to the table as a performer as a as a as a player mm-hmm. as a musician and as a songwriter chief among them all the songwriting mm-hmm. i mean and he brought a lot he brought a lot of songs i mean he brought a, i mean he brought an equal load that that the others had and wasn't going to get recognized for it, I don't blame him. No. I would yet, have been the, like, no. Yeah, this me what guy I want, gets signed to a five year contract, and we look at the writers on Animalize. And he's he's nowhere. Yeah, nope. he's not. That's because that's not what they want. No, they, they hired him to be a, just, uh, just to play the leads, and that was it. And yep. even then, he doesn't play you know, all the leads by any means. Either. No, not at all. There's a ton of additional guitar players all over this album, too. Which I'm sure we will. And, you know, and I don't see a lot of background history on this guy either. I don't know where he came from, what he had done. Uh, all I can find is he was teaching guitar in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and I'm kind of like well. he kind of he almost kind of used his foot in Kiss to start his career almost like he was kind of a nobody. Well, and then guess what? He was a nobody when yeah. it was over. I mean, yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, and this is not to shit on this guy. I don't know much about him. I'm not, you know, well, I, it's, I it's not like, shitting on someone that didn't do anything else that's kind of just by his own doing you know that that's not really shitting on it it's like you either do something or you don't and well if he's you know you said he's he's already uh working with him by may of 84 so if the if the uh lick it up tour ended up in march of 84 that's a pretty quick turnaround very quick turnaround that shows they were like we got to get on it and that's what makes me think especially because you mentioned earlier that he was part of possibly part of the rehearsals they're just now going down the checklist of oh what was the other guy you know i i I really feel like that could be the case i mean someone else was like hey remember this dude call him well they brought him i guess to new york because the the rehearsals take place at srr and uh New York. Yep. Uh, John Bavar is present. Again, yeah, this is the. He's been writing with Paul, and he recalls all of this as being very Paul being very focused and very demanding. And like, is, as they go through this, and this isn't the first time we see him uh, in the Kiss world, is it? Or is this the first time we see his name pop up? I feel like up? we've talked about him before once. Well, he's played with the Plasmatics, but I don't think he was with the Plasmatics when Plasmatics were opening for Kiss. Okay, oh, okay. Taken okay. off. Got it. Um, that may have been the connection we drew and that yeah. I'm thinking of. But he had been the bass player in the Plasmatics. Um, he played... Um, what, what else did he do? Um uh, appear on this uh, Kiss record. Well, yeah. And, and <laughs> if you take a look, if he you would, worked with the Ramones. He were he would later work with the Ramones, and then he uh, worked with Little Steven Van Zant from the E Street Band. So um, it's an interesting character. He's yeah, a, he's yeah. a he's a he's got a he's got a very impressive pedigree and a look to him. If you Google he's, him, he's yeah, very uh, out there. Yeah, it's like a peacock. <laughs> but he seems really cool. I always, I always enjoyed you know his interviews and stuff, and uh, he just seems like such a someone you'd want to hang out the bar with. An anomaly, and yeah, I'm sure he's got stories for days. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised he hasn't had greater success on his own. Um, 
he seems like he's just like talented beyond measure. One yeah, of those mm-hmm. cats, you know, but he, 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 but he's been able to apply it across a very diverse, wide array of stuff, including this Kiss album. And, and I think it will be several other Kiss albums too, if I'm not mistaken. But, I do believe you're correct. Uh, but he has it as Paul being, uh, having a real clear vision of what he wants to do with this album. So, I, you know, I got the vibe as I've researched this, that this is very much a Paul Stanley, almost solo record. Yes. Yeah. With minimal contributions from Gene. And, and as a little bit of a lead into exactly what you're saying about Paul being very focused, very driven, Knowing the psychology, because unfortunately, a lot of people have kind of, and the reason I like referencing Paul's book is, unfortunately, there's a lot of things and not really positive things about Paul's traits that I can also see in myself. Mm. And throughout listening to the lyrics of this record, you can hear him being focused and boosting himself up out of a bad place. And that's kind of the where some of these songs kind of lead an in interesting fact and begins a Paul Stanley trend of writing songs about climbing the mountain. We're going <laughs> to succeed. Oh, yeah. This, we're going to do it. Yes, this starts the yeah. we're going to do it song trend. Yeah, never, Nothing uh, else really did. And it comes from that place of Gene's running off doing movies. We've got a, you know, we've got the same drummer, cool, whatever. But now we're cycling. This is our third guitar or a second guitar. Well, third guitarist, really, in the span of, like, what, three years? Every yeah. year they're getting a new guitarist. The dude's feeling lost. All he has is Kiss. He's put everything into this band where now he feels like we've got a hired gun drummer. We're cycling through guitarists, and my one confidant is now running off and doing Hollywood shit. Yeah, Gene will depart midway through the sessions to start working on his first movie. Now, was it midway through? Because the, the feeling I got was, like, even kind of getting together, they they couldn't get Gene in the room. Uh, and he well, was see, recording stuff no, separately and sending it yeah, in. I don't know. I've, I've seen different things about that. John Bouvard says in an interview that he his memory was gene was very much present for for a lot of it mm-hmm. I, but i you know we know different though that it, it, it paul feels very different and we know that gene is going to go make this movie and yeah. and from the best i can tell he does it during this process yeah. and i just put midway because I don't know where. Is this the uh, the John Stamos movie? No. Okay. This is the movie with Tom Selleck. It's oh, called okay. Runaway. Runaway. Yeah. Uh, I, but um, Paul said he was very embarrassed by it. Oh. <laughs> well, well, Paul uh, refers to Gene's material that he contributed as trash. Yeah, he garbage. says that he. Uh, that I can't he, uh, remember the exact word he used, but it I was. I think it's crapped out a few demos. Yeah, it was like. <laughs> and the thing is, is this isn't even Paul being catty. Gene has even backed it up and said, "Yeah, this this was not my best songwriting." So this isn't even Paul just be shitting on things like, like he does in recent years. He just wasn't inspired, I guess you know, or Gene wasn't inspired to yeah, write anything. He wasn't like, paying hey, attention. Guess what? This isn't anybody's best songwriting, but we'll do no. whatever. <laughs> the. Uh, the uh, Paul's producing this. Shocker. Uh, Michael James Jackson was, they had wanted, he was involved in the pre-production, recorded the drum tracks. Yes. But that was as far as he could commit 
So he gets, um, I think he gets uh, some sort of production credit for he the gets, drum uh, tracks or something. Drum recording uh, credit. Yeah. Which, and, I mean, you can't beat that Creatures of the Night drum sound. Yeah, but he, yeah, and he doesn't. He doesn't do it with Look It Up. He no. doesn't do it here. <laughs> that's why they keep hanging it on because that. That's something I noticed if I, when I listened to the album and I, and I picked up on it again today. I, it, it's the, you know, and it was the 80s. It was the style. Yeah. But that snare is so bright and so, yep. you know, everything's, everything's just drenched in reverb. Which everything's so bright. You know, it sounds like it's in some airplane hangar and it just sounds like ass. Mm-hmm. And the, and it, but, the, but it really sounds like ass on this album. The, the the snare is so overpowering. And then he goes to the toms and they sound like they're like four miles away. Yep. Like it's like crash, crash, crash. It's like, I don't know, man. I They all think this is good, I guess. I I don't, but I'm again, it was the 80s. Of- it's interesting to note that they've used Alan Schwartzberg again, Schwartz, Schwartz, Schwartzberg overdubs. So there's that. That's telling me that they don't have a lot of confidence even in Eric Carr's ability. Now, is this an Eric Carr thing, or was this just an 80s thing overall, just to get that big drum sound that's I on those know. 80s metal I, records? You know, that's, a, that's a fair thing to ask. I have no idea. It's just interesting to note that and then whatever the they counter, wanted, they couldn't get from Eric. They brought in this cat to do it. And then on the counter, too, someone had to replace Eric for I. Yeah, well, yeah. The same so guy. Again, it's, same yeah, guy. yeah so again, it's again. an interesting thing. Of Alan like, Schwartzberg goes all the way back to Gene Simmons' solo album. Yeah. And I think he also played some Peter's album, if I, I remember so. right. He right. was one of those few guys that did that. Um, so that's an interesting 70s hang-on character. You know, well, he's he's a it's, he's an industry guy. Yeah, yeah. He, but he's a career. That's what he does. But like, a, but with all the things changing around Kiss, that's an interesting one familiar they're able to hold on to. Yeah, well, well, not just him, but uh, Desmond Child as well for songwriting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark St. John claims he had recorded for about two weeks alone with an engineer, I guess in L.A. Yeah. And Paul comes, he, he said Paul was out on vacation or something. Gene was off doing the movie, I reckon, and he's by himself. And Paul finally comes back and goes, well, let's hear what you got, and hates all of it. Yep. Erases it all and is like, nope, start all over again. And apparently he's using Rockman equipment on this. I saw that, too. I, I saw that on the Wikipedia page, which I was not aware of, which mm. I don't know if anyone knows what the Rockman was, but Tom Schultz was the guitar player in Boston. Mm-hmm. But Tom Schultz's main thing was he was kind of a, a gearhead guru guy that developed stuff. Yeah. He was an MIT graduate, and that was like, you know, and he had it, backstory on Tom O'Keefe. Or Tom O'Keefe. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Tom O'Keefe. Shout out Tom O'Keefe. Tom, <laughs> Tom Schultz, you know, he had worked for Polaroid and was doing the Boston stuff as demos, the first album. The first album, yeah. Just for fun. It was a hobby. And then he thought, hey, you know what? And then he got signed. He's like, great, I can go be a musician full time. And he got to do it full time and he realized he hated it. He's like, it just, he goes, it was better and more fun when it was just my hobby. So he started this company so he could have a day job again. Wow. Schultz Research and Development. Yeah. But I think uh, those, uh, all this uh, Rockman uh, gear was based off all of those, uh, the, those, that equipment that he recorded that first Boston album. Well, they, well, he was using full Marshalls back then, but, you know, he wanted to be able to downsize everything. Yeah. And he developed this amplifier that was the size of a Walkman. Um, portable cassette player, which yeah. was in vogue at the time, and he can, you know, Walkman, Rockman, yeah, and it was a portable. It had a headphone jack. 
you plugged your guitar into it, you know, and it had a very distinct sound, which was the classic Boston sound. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, uh, according to what was on Wikipedia, they had to do a lot of EQing and balancing and blah, 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 <laughs> I to, mean. Kind of, to kind of scrub that sound out of it. But they were very popular. They were very in vogue. I think, um, if I remember, I think Def Leppard used them to a, a great degree. Mm-hmm. And they were, it was, it be, you know, if they're for a minute, they were like the hot little tool that everyone used. That's interesting. Um, but again, Paul doesn't like any of it, so they have to go back and do it again. If that's if that's correct, I don't know. That's the story that I read. I've heard that, and when Mark finally landed on something Paul liked, he was like, "Great, now do it again." Yeah, and he couldn't. And he could allegedly. But to me, it's like, okay, you're you're already dealing with this straight into it. You're like, you're not stopping, going, hmm, maybe I made a mistake here. <laughs> yeah, you know, because obviously they're just like, okay. We'll just do it again. Well, from and, and I hate speaking ill will because you know, unfortunately, Mark has passed. But it's like from from different accounts, Mark's not been necessarily like the nicest guy to hang around. So maybe it was also a situation of he was just kind of given lips. So Paul just kind of had to step forward a little that. harder. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, only until like the recent years before his passing would he even acknowledge the idea of kiss like he was very bitter about it did not like talking about it and that's also possibly part of the reason why his other bands did not succeed is that he was not very easy or nice to deal with in bands oh i've never i've never heard that but i mean i guess it's possible Hmm. to me um i think there was probably other things at play beyond his health issues so that makes sense Mm -hmm. but that's just only because some of that stuff in and of itself doesn't make sense but we'll talk about that especially because i had no problem railing on Vinny for similar things well i mean i'm saying with mark st john it seemed like you know this is the only time in his life he ever had this problem yeah Hmm. which is weird so (laughs) makes you wonder let's look at this album let's just go ahead and dive into this track by track here um, so we'll we'll put the we'll put the vinyl on the turntable. <laughs> Actually, by this point, I guess now you have a CD. You can do the CD thing at this yeah. point, or, or cassette tapes. The cassette were, was really yeah, the thing. Yeah, so we'll pop you know, the cassette so we got in. The, we're gonna pop the cassette in <laughs> on our on our Walkman headset no, radio while we're riding to school in the on the bus on the big yellow phone. And what do we get? <laughs> and you get this this blasting. Uh, you know hard rock number with yeah. flash flash playing right out of the chute mm-hmm. you know the the all the little scale things all of your uh, your 80s hard rock uh, kind of opener track uh you know go to this is what i have i have trying to sound aggressive lacking balls yeah that's, interesting that's this whole album to me though yeah i think it's it's almost it's like uh trying too hard yeah yeah, you know, it's like I got to come up with something really powerful, and I think in a, in the hands of another band, it might work a little better. I think it's a strong opener. I think it was the right choice for the opening song out of all with the this, songs, out of yeah. this batch of songs. But to me, they, I mean, and this is my problem with a lot of their material in this era. It sounds like montage music yep. from a movie. It sounds like it, it's a just and, a and, and to perfectly fit mm-hmm. that, this is where I said also possibly the start of Paul's Conquer the World lyrics. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which I guess that's why it gives me that feeling. It's mm-hmm. like, was this written for Rocky Four? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although interesting drum patterns, like the double time on the hi hat, 
alternating with that. So it's like, yeah, but you can that, see Eric's trying to do something. But is it Eric or is that an Eric <laughs> or Schwartzberg? <laughs> I thought of that today. There was, yeah. so, so I, you know what? I, I was driving in and I, I I caught it and I meant to, I made a mental note that of it. That was like an interesting drum thing. There was an interesting drum thing that was going on and I was like, ah, I bet is that's it what it was. Is it in the done. night? No. Okay. Because I've got, uh, I've got things on. Anyway, I had enough. Uh, into the fire. <laughs> it might have been on Into the Fire. I don't know. It was a hi hat thing. Yeah, that's the one where they're kind of doing the double time yeah, on the hi hat. Like, yeah, it was. It was pretty interesting. I thought, you know, that's something that I bet's one of those overdub things. But who knows? Um, I mean, what you get on this though is you get the full brunt of what this yet again uh, yet another new model kiss yep. is, and that's because of this guitar player, and he's doing all the. All the, the flash bombs, and flash, just, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it, with the with whammy the, bar and the, the whole thing and the speed metal kind of palm muted, uh, you know, sixteenth uh, notes. Ticka 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 ticka. Well, that's something that we talked about in the other record. He, uh, he's he's starting to use that as a device on a lot of his rhythmic stuff. Mm-hmm. And and to me, and that's where they're trying to sound aggressive but lacking balls because Paul is not that aggressive. No, and it, it feels very disingenuous coming from Paul. If it was coming from Gene, maybe. Exactly. But Paul, from day one in the band, has been the lover, the passionate, the sex talker. Now we've got the, I'm going to fight and conquer yeah, the world. Right, it feels yeah. so disingenuous. His big, ballsy, bluesy riffs that he would write in the 70s are gone for this new clipped kind of thing. And I wouldn't equate it to speed metal because that wasn't really, wasn't really in vogue at that point. I think it was something he kind of, just by coincidence, stumbled upon himself. I might be wrong, but I mean... At that time, going back to, to like, even like the oath or stuff well, or stuff like that. Well, yeah, and yeah, and, and creatures of the night, the the riff on creatures of the night, and, and I, you know, maybe he picked it up there. I don't know, but it just seems like to me. I think this is just something that he stumbled on as a as a rhythmic device that he can use. I don't like it so much, <laughs> but you know, this he writes around it so much. Yeah, except for a song like the next one, "Heaven's on Fire." Yeah. Where it's just the big chords, but this song is just dopey to me. I'm not going to lie. This is one of my 80s Kiss uh, guilty pleasures. I only have one sentence for this song. Boring album song, fun live song. Yeah. I will say in a live setting, this song is fun. Recorded, it's not. I think this song, well, that's interesting. I think that's why this song endures. It endures on the fact that it was issued as a single, and and since it's a single, they continued to play it live. But it's not near as strong as some. There's much better material on this record than this song. There's a song I'm going to single out here in a little bit as being what I thought had the potential to be a, a, a more successful. Single. I wonder if we're going to talk about the same one. Probably. Okay. I got. I can't. I wouldn't. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the one moment for the Heavens on Fire music video where Gene and Paul breathe into each other on the last <laughs> yes. verse. Yes. Ugh. Well, see, my, the, the one I always take away from that is Paul jumping through the ring of fire yes. at the end. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is we, we, me and my friends used to always make fun of that opening opening vocal. Whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was actually him just warming up. Yep. That's, they just kept and it. And they kept it. Yeah. Right. And that's a that's a just a that was a, so that's a completely spontaneous probably the only spontaneous moment on this entire album right <laughs> which actually kind of gives it a little bit more like 
cool factor to a point to a to a certain extent but you know i gotta say and this, it, this, the other thing, this record needs anything you could take russ come on give it to it <laughs> Another, uh, desmond child co-write this is in the middle of desmond child mania in the 80s with hard rock bands you know sorry what were you saying I just his whole vocal style we've talked about this before at some point he's had vocal lessons or something his voice does not sound as natural and as as full as it did in the 70s and he keeps going higher and higher trying to get higher and higher and it's like it sounds very throaty it doesn't sound like it's coming from his chest it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound good to me i just think it's like he just sounds like just, he's trying to show off too much and it's not i just don't think his voice is good and everyone else is going to completely shit on me for saying that i don't like paul stanley's voice in the 80s and that most people are like that's when he was at his best i'm like he doesn't sound like it sounds forced it sounds trained it doesn't sound like honestly I, to, I think early to late 90s paul sounded the best well see i i just don't I just like think mtv he unplugged lost yeah, I mean, he was kind of yeah. That was a good yeah. Topic, but I'm I'm just I can remember when I was a little kid and there was a, a popular song by Sticks, and I don't remember which which one it was, but Dennis DeYoung was the singer on it. That's what I remember. And even when and this was when I was like in fifth or sixth grade, yeah. And the reason why this sticks out in my head because my mom kind of turned and looked at me like, "That's interesting. You would notice that." And I'm like, his voice just doesn't sound. He doesn't have a good rock and roll voice. I was arguing arguing this with my brother. <laughs> and he's like, Why? What do you mean? And I'm like, I mean, it sounds like he's like he's too proper of a singer. Like he's trained like a, I didn't I don't think I used the word trained, yeah, but yeah, I was yeah. in that. He was too good. good. It was like his voice was like too measured and yeah, too you know, it was too prim. It didn't it didn't have a, a, a that kind of raw looseness that rock and roll music kind of requires, you know. And like that's like Paul Stanley in the seventies is a lot closer to me to, to like little Richard, whereas Paul Stanley in the eighties and nineties is a lot more Dennis DeYoung. <laughs> I was going to say Pavarotti. I mean, it's just, yeah, Dennis DeYoung. It's just not good. Uh, I, don't I don't like it. I just, I think it, it, it's one of the things that hurts this music for me is well, where does heavens on fire land for you? I just think it's boring. I don't think this, I didn't yeah. like it. You got to remember, I can remember buying this record when it was brand new and, you know that was the single, and it got some airplay. It got mm-hmm. some. It got the video got a lot of play. I mean, this was a successful record for yeah. them. The songwriter nerd in me likes the little things in it, though, like the little uh, harmony in the second verse. That baby, don't stop, take it to okay, the top. That's, I don't know. I just always got a kick out of that I part. Mean, I mean, as far as puzzling what they've got together, if they're making chicken salad out of chicken yeah. shit, yeah, <laughs> I don't think they're even making chicken salad out of chicken shit. They're just making. Fried chicken shit. <laughs> yeah, something. I don't Fried know. I just think shit. I just never cared for the song. I think there's stronger songs on this album. Three but, word but, review for Animal Lies. Fried chicken shit. <laughs> <laughs> but as for stronger songs on the album, this next one, not so much. No, I was about to say. I was like, Russ. <laughs> I was say. Russ. No. Okay, no, good, good, no, good, good, no, good, no, good. No. It's definitely one of those demos that Gene crapped out. <laughs> no, I was gonna say the very first sentence I have that should have been left in the demo phase. Yeah, burn, bitch, burn. How about no? No, no, no. I'm going to put my log in your fireplace. What in the fuck are you thinking? That is some spinal tap shit, man. You know, this is going to be like a a mantra on the next. Like, we started this in the last episode. I know I said it on the last episode. I just said it again. That's some spinal tap shit. I'm just going to make a list of like all the bad Gene songs. We'll just have a list, an episode of just like, what's the worst Gene Simmons song of the 80s? I will say, um, 
his his name immediately slipped my mind. Craig Gass. Uh, he had a bit one time where he did like a spoken word poetry bit and just read like the lyrics to "Burn, Bitch, Burn," being like, "I'm gonna put my log yeah. in your fireplace." Cut <laughs> <laughs> through it like a hot knife through butter. <laughs> if you're gonna try to be a macho misogynist pig, is this really the music you want for your soundtrack? <laughs> Think about it. Burn, bitch, burn. It's it's like, and you know, that melody line would work in in another context. This is is all the notes I have for Burn, Bitch, Burn verbatim. I said, should have never left the demo phase. I'm going to put my log in your fireplace, yet the chorus gets stuck in my head. Yeah. And it it just, the lyric of it hadn't been Burn, Bitch, Burn. If it could have been anything else, it might have worked. And I don't know. This just doesn't, it just comes off as just like, Gene throwing the word bitch around again like yeah, it's nothing. I'm a tough guy. I'm Gene motherfucking Simmons. I'm it's like man. And side note, watching the animal I watched the animal live uh video on YouTube. Animal the, Live. Yeah, Animal Live. They should've, they should've <laughs> called it that. I know. Yeah. Uh, this is definitely the start of the tour where Paul was getting off on saying the word fuck. Yeah, I'm macho. I'm, I'm gonna start cool. cussing on stage. Uh-huh, like, so. I want you to know, you know. Well, I mean, they, there's 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 stuff though they did in the '70s that I, I'm gonna have to cop to saying, okay, you know, there's times where they said dumb shit in the '70s, like we were backstage with all our alcohol, and they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> <The> ace was <laughs> uh, get all you can take. Um, this one's one of those like now we're getting to like a utterly forgettable kind of. Yeah, territory you know, here. I uh, I like the opening riff, and I think the pre-chorus of it's pretty good. That's exactly what I have. I said helium, Paul, but the pre-chorus works a lot. It works then a immediately lot. loses it, me during the actual chorus and verse. And this is something that seems to be a trend with Paul Stanley's songs. We talked about this in the mm-hmm. previous episode, I think. It's like he goes to a point, he gets this great pre-chorus, which mm-hmm. is all, and that's better than the chorus that follows, and that's not a good thing. No. And, and again, it's like he goes and he's like he's building this thing, and then he just runs out of material to build with, and he just like pulls scraps together, and that's, that's okay. Well, there's your chorus, and we're not sitting here going, "This is a fantastic pre-chorus." Oh my god! But it's like out of everything we've heard so far, it's like, oh, it's got promise to this do something else. Yeah. It, that's what makes it so frustrating. Listen, to all these records is that you hear the. Uh, potential of some of these songs and you know some of them are well constructed it's just the material they're working with isn't does that make sense yeah. absolutely i i have a lot to say about that with the next song well, but keep let's say i on just want to i want to note that the lyrics here are written by mitch weissman and uh he thought i guess there's the the line where i i still have it i don't notice it but i guess paul says what fucking difference does it make yeah but to me, and I'm like, that just seems like he's acknowledging his own ambivalence to this song. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> and John Brevoir plays bass on this. Yeah. Um, I so heard a lot about that song. That this, That's the only song that I was just like, kind of got excited for for a second. And then, like I said, the chorus and verses just lost it me. It just yeah. sort of falls apart. Uh, Lonely in the Hunt. Well, Lonely, Lonely is, is, the, is hunter. the Hunter. See, this is one where I kind of, this is one that I kind of dig. You know, for a bad Gene Simmons song, it's not terrible. You know, it's uh, it's got that kind of 80s Aerosmith riff at the beginning too that's what I hear a lot particularly on the Gene Simmons uh, songs on here is I, like, I, no, wait 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 right, before we even say anything I just looked over to Alex and Alex <laughs> looks like he's about to pop yeah. well I feel is this the one you have notes on or did we make the same fucking notes for the whole show <laughs> I've got notes on all this well, stuff well I'm about to say it but 
we looked at each other as if we had the same thought about the oh, riff. I doubt it. Go okay. ahead. My note on this, and, it, and this might be controversial, the riff tries to call back to classic Kiss. Okay, no, then I did right <laughs> That's that. it. We so, were looking yeah. at each other like that. It's so weird. And this see, song almost has it. It sounds, I said this most, I think this would have been served Gene better Solo by the original record. group. I, well, I think, like I said, the original lineup yeah, yeah. would have done really well with this. It has that vibe. Yep. I mean, Joe Perry it, played on the fucking Gene Simmons record too, so well, that makes sense. Yeah, That's that was fucking... my note. I said possibly Gene Simmons or like Man of a Thousand Faces kind of kind of open But I think this, even with the original lineup of Kiss, I think it's could have worked better i think yeah. it needs better lyrics but i mean not not to any grand degree i mean uh but overall, then the rest of it i say another lifeless gene song clearly showing he's barely part of the band anymore well yeah i i think this is the second this is my second favorite song on the record or maybe even my first it's probably a tie with this other song that we'll say but um, it's probably my favorite gene track on the record interesting really? if i had to pick one yeah oh yeah i think this is by far away is gene's standout woman maybe on this, this one it's not even a great song so it's not much of a standout but well maybe this one annoys me the most because i drew that connection to it sounding like a classic kiss riff Mm -hmm. so it just made the feeling of gene not even trying more evident because i'm like you had the start of something if you had tried you possibly could have given us a little taste of the 70s but they didn't and i think that's why this song maybe sticks in my side a little harder question is did they want to i mean I feel, mm. I feel like uh, Aerosmith was listening to this, and uh, they were like, I have an idea for a song called Love in an Elevator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a, that's a whole, it'll be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. It's <laughs> called Love in an Elevator. Aerosmith, Aerosmith illustrating that, you know what? How Sometimes de- drugs are better. How desperate. <laughs> yeah. Because drugged out Aerosmith is, is, a, is the best Aerosmith. A million times better than the fucking shitty 80s, 90s Aerosmith. I knew that where was you were going like with that too. That's shitty good. fucking. How Desmond Child ruined Aerosmith. <laughs> Desmond Child seems to ruin everything he touches. Ooh. <laughs> Here mean, come I, the comments. I can hear him now. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Tell me. I mean, God, he just writes the most like standardized fucking commercial trivialized bullshit. But, <laughs> but. He gets the last laugh because he's the one with all the money. He's got way more money than the three of us will ever see. A bazillion, jillion, gazillion, million records. He's got that Kiss, Bon Jovi, and Ricky Martin money. But quality, quality doesn't sell. (laughs) True. Uh, And uh, let's see. Okay, so now we got to pull the cassette out, flip her over. Unless you have the automatic return, Mm -hmm, and and then you got to get a little bit of rewind. Yeah, <laughs> just in case they didn't match up on both sides. On the Rockman or the Walkman? The oh. Walkman. <laughs> oh, the yeah. Walkman. Uh, Under the Gun. Mm. Another speed metal uh, attempt. I don't see this as speed metal either. It's got the double kick. I think for what they're going for here, I think this is a very strong track. I agree with that. I, I don't d- like the song per se. But what's the one stupid lyric that I've uh, got it? I've hold okay. it. Don't, don't you take that from me. I, I, I wrote this paragraph as if I was Russ. Like I heard Russ's head when I wrote this. I said, "Another Paul trying to be tough song when the romantic clearly works better for him." Sounds disingenuous to say the least. Paul is not quote getting crazy with the pedal to the metal, but maybe he is hiding the hitting the highway at sixty nine. Yeah, <laughs> it's awful. But no, I think this is just an it's 
what it is is had enough into the fire part two. It's another version of Paul trying to sound tough, yeah, and it just doesn't work. It Paul tough does not work. He tried. To, he's trying to do the Judas Priest thing where he's like hitting all the yeah, high notes is. over like the, all the the chugging. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is where I was picking up really on how much his voice just doesn't do it for me. Yep. Mm-hmm. It just it sounds it sounds it just sounds kind of strained and thin mm-hmm. and kind of and not helium. But sort of the guitars but, too, like it's supposed to be like a chuggy, you know, a fast rock song. But even it's a guitar, car rock song. It's a and car that's rock. another reason it feels weird for Paul to be singing. It's it's got a lot of like pedal to the metal driving down the highway of sixty nine. It sounds like Sammy Hagar can't yes. drive fifty five. Yeah, it's <laughs> like when did when did Paul that, turn into Ted Nugent? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like it, he's he's not the car guy kind of songwriter. It's weird. It's weird. It's like, well, there's a lot of to probably me. that uh, Desmond Child and probably that uh, Eric Carr uh, contribution what, too. He's what, credited as what, a writer wait, on this. What? What? Uh, you know what? I don't have this written down. Let me. Let me. Under let me, the gun. Well, writer Stanley, curious. Eric Carr, and yeah, Desmond Child. Okay, I was going to ask where where Desmond Child fits in on a lot of this. Yeah, he wrote. Let's see, he wrote. Uh, I've had enough into the fire. fire. And that one, boom. Yep. Those are the two. Okay. Well, there you yep, are. Yep. He's trying to add some weird kind of aggression that just doesn't fit to me. To me, it doesn't fit. Well, I'll take the cranky card this time. <laughs> moving um, away from aggression. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thrills in the night. With uh, the Jean, uh, how you pronounce his last name? Bavar. Uh, co-write. And this is my least favorite song on the album. Really? Yeah. This is my favorite. Really? Yeah, this this, is, this it's ties so, for my favorite, too. Really? It's just so boring to me. It's, I, I think... I can see that. I, I, can, like I get this. this. I've got, always liked this song. I don't like Paul... It's like you talk about with Paul's vocal about how it got, you know, yeah, yeah. that's what well, ruins no, it for I think me. That's the, he's down in a deeper register, which suits his voice better at this point. But um, I think this... I mean, I don't... It's like I like this song. I don't think it's a great song. It's not... I wouldn't put it in even my top 1,000 favorite songs of all time, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it works, for especially for what they're doing. I think, um, you know, again, I have to remove it from classic Kiss, you know, but this, and it's still, to me, at at par with a movie soundtrack Mm -hmm. disposable song. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it works. It's, I think it's atmospheric. I think the open spacing in the verse works well. Well, I think the mm pre-chorus is great. You know, you know, it's a fine song arrangement wise. The but part where you know she's walking, walking around, around, like I like that part's really strong. And again, but the thrills of the night chorus really isn't as strong as the pre-chorus part, no. which is again a problem with all of this stuff. And it does that '80s thing where it just goes over and over, well, yeah, and over. Well, this, the music nerd in me noticed something that I really like, and this is possibly going to be like the '80s version of mentioning that rock and roll over has all fade outs. So you're never going to not hear it. Eric does not hit the snare in this song until halfway through the first verse. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was weird. It, the whole rhythm is him on the ride. Maybe that's one reason kick, why I think this works. Toms. Maybe that gives it maybe that's why I felt it was atmospheric, because it doesn't get bombarded with this mm-hmm. bombastic drum. I will but, say though, I was very incorrect and I left this note just in case because I know on our off time. Um, we've discussed, or you've discussed, how Bruce was very much a generic player, that he didn't really have a style. 
I thought this was Bruce playing the solo, and I was like, this is one of the better solos. Really? In- I thought it was. I, I don't thought- think this fits the song at all. Oh, I love the intro and everything. Like To me, this felt very different from the rest of the record solo-wise, and that's mm. when it popped in my head. I was like, oh, I wonder if this is the Bruce solo. See, motherfuckers, Bruce does nope. have a... Nope. 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 Yeah, nope. It wasn't. <laughs> no, the, but but I still have best, to out myself. <laughs> this is the best. Uh, to, but to that end, this is Mark St. John's best moment on this record. I, I think it's good because uh, I mean, but I still think. And he, again, he's I'm not saying I love. This I don't think song, it's serving. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's serving the song as well as it could be. I think, you know, he's still overplaying. He overplays everything, but they, yeah. you know, and I don't know how much of that was him and how much was under the direction of what Paul wanted. Um, I would suspect, even though he deny it today, I suspect Paul kept pushing for. More flash, more flash. It's I wouldn't be, be shocked. You know. I don't know. I, like going back to Under the Gun, I do like the one part where like there's like a shreddy bit that's kind of harmonized that I thought was pretty cool. So that's like my one like Mark St. John uh, highlight moment that stuck with me listening to the, listening to this. Um, the next song, While the City Sleeps, and so do I. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's you. all I had. This is a. <laughs> Boring fucking un... I mean, why? You know? And, and I, I'm like, there's just nothing interesting here. Mitch Weissman credits a free song called Wishing Well as an inspiration. Like the, the free song Wishing Well? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I can hear that. And and I'm like, okay, but, you know, it doesn't even come anywhere near... And no. Eric, you know, I, I wrote here, I said, it's filler track. I said, Eric wants to contribute, but is always told his ideas aren't developed enough. And this is? Right. Yeah, really. You, no. say that, you could say that about these last two songs, like back to back, like the riffs are boring. There's like, it's like a Led Zeppelin riff. They want to have like a Led Zeppelin kind of stompy fucking riff, but it just sounds so, it just sounds like they came up with it in five it's minutes and pedestrian. just said, that's, it's yeah, it's pedestrian. Very, yeah. They were just like, that's good enough. Let's well, put it on there. Okay. Do you, you got anything to contribute to that? Because there's nothing, not a lot to say about this song. This is what probably Kiss at their most apathetic. Absolutely not. And to kind of just work off what Cap just said, I think this is probably the weakest album closers on any Kiss record. These two back to back songs. Like, I forget about them a lot. Like, if they had honestly ended at Thrills of the Night, I might have a slightly different opinion on this record. Well, okay, now, okay, well, let's go into this Murder in High Heels, the closing track. Yeah. This is also written by Mitch Weissman, and, and, and the interview I read with him on, on the Kiss FAQ mm-hmm. website, he claims to have written this song pretty much entirely alone. Hmm. Unless I misread it. Yeah. But that's well, the I way mean, but, I took but, it. But Simmons getting a co-write on it doesn't seem odd because Paul was saying that he wanted co-producing credit on everything still. That's every major act ever. You're going to get... Regardless of yeah. how little input he had. Yeah. You're probably... If, if they got decent management, they're going to be... Uh, we got to have a little bit of that publishing money. So got to put you know yeah put his name on make sure it's in paper he maybe not have written anything but it's on paper mm-hmm. you know we'll say uh, i wrote this get a, it on I, I i don't know if i want to say this on the podcast i'll, I'll speak in vagaries <laughs> there is someone that uh I, I, that is local that mm-hmm. had a had a, a locally popular band mm-hmm. re-recorded those songs with another band and all of a sudden the 
co-write credits all changed really with the new members of that band because that was the major you know they didn't write any of it it was yeah. all him but for him to get that boost up he yeah, had to yeah. Share the song. but Damn. that's the way that business works yeah and it's like if you like i remember um watching um sturgill simpson win the grammy or get nominated i guess for album of the year or whatever and we were watching this at the bar mm-hmm. TV, and they were showing they 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 were showing the you know a little thing saying had their production credit. You know, it was like Sturgill Simpson, written and produced by Sturgill Simpson. And it was Beyonce. Oh shit! And it scrolled like movie credits. Yep. You know, and and, That's and a whole but team. Beyonce gets her name in the publishing credits. I'm sure she doesn't write shit. Yeah, I can't say she's that definitively. The, she's the talent of the voice, but she's the voice. But then, therefore, she gets some. She's going to get a songwriting credit because she's got good management, and they're going to make sure that she gets that publishing money. Yeah, I assume. I, you know, I, I, obviously, I it can't prove sense. that, but it makes sense. So, if Mitch Weissman wrote this by himself, I wouldn't discount that at all. No, um, or if he claims he did. Um, again, this is Bruce Kulick playing lead on this track. Um, How appropriate that it, uh, it's uh, his guitar playing that closes out the album. Yeah. Closing another chapter. I think the, I like the pre-chorus on this a lot. The pre-chorus is fine. and But the chorus itself, that riff, I think could have been better served if it was showcased as its own riff on its own song. I can see that. And it doesn't work as a chorus, mm-hmm. you know? I really had no notes on this one. I just said another boring Gene song. It just feels <laughs> half-baked to me. And that's the thing that's frustrating with these records. With these records, all these songs sound like they're like kind of unfinished, and then they're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, we got to get it done." Mm-hmm. Like, we'll just, oh, but who's oh, rushing them? I, themselves. Well, the re- record label, I'm sure they've got a schedule to keep. They got a, you know, and they got a. What's rushing them is also they've got no they, money. They've got. <laughs> yeah. They've got. They got to run with the money they have until they run out. Uh, this record's released on, or at least. I don't know if it's a release date or a ship date. September first, eighty four. Yeah, and I've got thirteenth. Yeah, so I think that's the ship is the first release on the thirteenth. The uh, cover is just terrible. (laughs) Well, uh, didn't Paul Stanley design that one? Yes, he designed it. That's. I mean, that is a just an awful cover. (laughs) It's not as bad as the Elder. Don't you but hate on my T-shirt? It's, it's, oh yeah, yeah. He's wearing a leopard print shirt for those who cannot, yes, which is all of you, in honor of, of animals. That's right. It's not cheesy at all. <laughs> uh, the but leopard, zebra, and tiger. Yeah, see, if, now if you had the zebra and the tiger, it might be. See, I almost wore my zebra pumas. <laughs> oh, you uh, the okay. Paul Stanley zebra pumas I have. <laughs> The zebra stripe came very in vogue in the mid '80s. Oh yeah, think, multicolor zebra stripes, the pink yeah. neons, the green neons. Uh, I don't think this album is anywhere as good as Look It Up. I, for some See, reason, this feels more tolerable to me. Same here. Like this was a this felt like a breath of fresh air to me compared to Look It Up. Quite I honestly, think Look It Up's got better songwriting. Uh, it's just better. It seems like it's a little more cohesive. This feels this more feels fun. A, this feel, I, I I can see that this is yeah. a brighter record. And I think it's, but I just still think "Lick It Up" was a better record. Um, but this is the more commercially successful album. Mm-hmm. It's the first. It goes. It goes. Um, it goes platinum in three months. We talked about in the previous episode that like "Lick It Up" took seven years to go platinum yeah and we measured it to other quote-unquote heavy metal records of that era their contemporaries who are just like popping them off mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me and they do not 
But on this one, they do. So lick Pop. it up. Vinny Vincent did Vinny safe kiss. Hmm. No. Animal eyes. Safe kiss. Or hell saved kiss. <laughs> Heaven's on fire. Safe kiss. He slurped it a little too quick. <laughs> <laughs> Animal eyes killed Russ. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. No, but choke I, down I, that bullshit. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I, I agree with the sentiment or any of that, but just going by the numbers, the way this plays out. This album is a marginally successful album. Yeah. It's still not on par with their peers of the moment. They're not going to sell four million copies. They're going to sell a million, a million seven, I think, which is pretty respectable. It's no and purple a, rain. And it's, peak chart yeah. was number nineteen. They they cracked the top twenty. Yep. Uh, so this certified puts them, gold in um, December third, eighty four. Yeah, and then platinum like a week later, two yeah. weeks later. Yep. So. They've done well with this. Uh, Mark St. John, he does his job great, but I don't like the job that he does. <laughs> and I don't think Kiss did either. And, and you know what? My problem with this, in, in, in most bands of this ilk in this era, different from the Kiss, classic Kiss, and again, it's not fair to judge the two against each other, but I'm going to anyway, is you can't even sing along with these solos. Yeah. Like, no, you can no. sing along with the classic Kiss solos. You, you know, can, the only thing I can remember sing along on this record? Burn, bitch, yeah, burn. Well, I'm not even talking about a lyric or a chorus. I'm talking about the solos were so but memorable. Anything. Well, like, even the Heavens on Fire, the biggest hit, the, the solo in it is just like an arpeggiated kind of, you know, open string kind of thing. Yeah. You know, there's not really any kind of like, yeah, it's like the lick it up solo. But I'm just saying with the classic kiss, if you take a song, just pick a random song, for instance, like 100,000 years, you can kind of hum along with that solo. You know it, you follow it, you can track it. It's easy to go along with and it's still cool. It's not, you know, it's not that it's boring or disinteresting. It just serves that song so well is that's one thing Ace really did well. He had his little bag of tricks. He kept doing them over. He'd go to it over and over, you know, the same little pieces, which is fine. That's his style. That works here. It's, I I can't hum along and, you know, sing along with the solos on any of this stuff, unless I'm just going, and that's all it is. And I'm like, I don't, it makes guitar passe to me. The 80s guitar god thing, that shred style, there's nothing interesting about it. It's like playing video games or watching a stenographer type. <laughs> it's, there's just nothing good about this. I think, you know, and, I, and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, you want me to elicit a lot of hate. I'm going to credit Eddie Van Halen for ushering in this, this whole era. It killed rock and roll guitar playing. There are a lot of great guitar players in rock and roll, or no, there's a lot of yeah, great guitar players in rock and roll, but there's not a lot of great rock, rock and, and roll, roll guitar, guitar players. players. And it's like people don't understand this. They want that neoclassical. It got they've dumbed people into thinking that this, you know, this sort of uh, uh, European idea of you know a musician must be a fine musician and must play his instrument well. That doesn't mean he's got to be a sloppy suck job or whatever, but. You know, because there's a lot of guys that can still play what you might consider a shred style that I really like. Randy Rhodes. Yeah. Randy Rhodes had a feel, you know. And he had Gary a, Moore. 
And the, those guys. Gary Moore is an amazing guitar player, but he's still a great rock and roll guitar player. And the problem that uh, Gary, like with Gary, well, not, not the problem with these guys, like Gary Moore. The thing about Gary Moore, Randy Rhodes, and I'll put Eddie Van Halen on this list too, is that they had a tone that was distinct. They well, had. I don't, it's not even that. It's just a feel, a vibe. It's something that serves a song, and that it still feels like they're playing something that is, you know. I don't know. I, I can't. It's an intangible. It's hard for me to verbalize yeah. it. But this I, whole thing where it's just like you're just trying to hit notes and and that there's no tone. It on gets any. to where the the guitar sounds like a keyboard. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Because and, it's so bright and, like, and there's no you know meat to it. And that goes for a lot of bands of this era. And I'll say this about this album: if Paul and Gene weren't doing the vocals on this, I wouldn't be able to pick, uh, pick this band out from like say a Rat or a. Uh, that's an uh, amazing fast point. Play, or like uh, any other band from this era, well, you, you know? Yeah, I won't say Fastway because I like Eddie Clark. You know, okay. <laughs> I, I couldn't think of like another name. All right, Finney Vincent Invasion or some yeah. shit. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, um, all of this is moot, of course, because as we know, Mark St. John develops this mysterious arthritic condition that renders him unable to play. Yeah. Um. This, this will was lead in the to middle us. of the tour. Was this in the middle of the tour? No, this no. Was before, before the tour it even started. started. Okay. So, like, a, like, a, like a month before the tour started, this happened. They Initially, the idea here is they're going to have a substitute play the first leg of the world tour, which is all in Europe. It's, uh, uh, let's see, Starts 30 dates, I think. 30 dates in Europe. Um, the replacement. Enter one Bruce Kulik. The at this point a substitute for Mark St. John. So this is a confusing time for the band. Yeah, you've they're got, on tour with two guitar players. Well, let's talk about Bruce real fast. He's the baby brother of Bob Kulick. Uh, he played with Meatloaf along with his brother. There's you can find live video of the two of them playing with Meatloaf. Yeah, on the Bat Out of Hell run or yeah. like so, okay or post Bat Out of Hell. Yeah. Um, you can see Bob in his wig. It is Sonny Bono wig do. Uh, and he was apparently recommended by Bob. Um, yep. He was, uh, you know, A few obviously. Times, but finally they did it. It's interesting because they, they bring him in and he'll be brought in as a permanent hire by December. And Paul writes in his book that he always wanted Kiss to be a band, not Gene and Paul with backing musicians, which is totally hypocritical for him to say because that is exactly what kiss is it's yeah. all it's been since 1982 that's what it is so shut the fuck up <laughs> don't sit here and come crying to me if you're not going to give these guys equal full partnership as a member of a band then mm-hmm. shut the fuck up that's some bullshit to say and if i were bruce Kulick or eric carr or eric singer i'd be really insulted by that yeah you know, it's like, hey, motherfucker, I've been here being dedicated this whole time. And yet, you know, you're paying me a salary. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, you don't have a fucking band. He's like, he's like, I always wanted Kiss to be a band. Well, you know what? You never elevated anyone into your fucking band. But at the into same your, time. It's not a band. It's a duo. But like at the I same said, time, who else in the duo. band would have been, quote unquote, good enough to elevate? Because we're sitting That's here talking about, talking about how me. good just, the members I'm are. I'm just saying but. it's irrelevant. It's stupid for Paul to say something like that. Yeah. It's just really fucking ignorant and hypocritical. Hypocritical, yeah. But 
we'll get past that <laughs> one of these days <laughs> tour opens in brighton england with bon jovi as the opening act mm-hmm. which is interesting because bon jovi is about to go supernova and make kiss completely irrelevant uh-huh. yeah to the point where kiss is going to openly and explicitly and and brazenly copy bon jovi but we'll we'll cross that yeah. bridge when we on get the there. next record <laughs> Um, not the next one, but close to it. They do 30 dates and ends in Paris. This is a pretty uneventful tour. The U.S. tour opens on November 15th in Allentown, Pennsylvania, with Queensryche opening. What a clusterfuck. Queensryche, one of the worst fucking bands ever in the history of <laughs> rock and roll. Oh, get your keyboards ready. Get your keyboards ready. I don't ready. think anyone's really going to fight that one. Well, God damn it. What I don't know, man. I, just, I don't I, think I, there... I don't, in the Venn diagram of podcast listeners that are in this, I don't think we really crossed the uh, Let me just go seas. ahead and get this out. Stupid, boring, pretentious, fucking, dumb, fucking bullshit Queensryche. God damn it. Man, that one stupid song where they start reporting the news in the middle of it. like Oh, like about, that stupid song where the Kiss has the reporting at the very beginning of it? No, this is like in the middle of the song. It's like... It's like it's like they start reciting like fucking statistics about drug dealers and stuff. I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> Christ! Now you know, I will it, say, it, there's, there's a way the, you can do that, and then there's a way you can do, do Queensrÿche. And though this was a rather uneventful tour, uh, something very interesting did happen at the very beginning, which was Mark was on tour with the guys. They, they are both together, but no, he not in Europe. Mark stays home. Okay. Bruce does the Europe tour. They're checking on him periodically. But mm-hmm. when they come back to America, Mark is on board thinking that at some point they'll make the switch. Yeah. And Mark actually plays like two and a half shows with them. The first one was in Baltimore. and uh, No, he does half the show. Baltimore, Maryland on November 27th. Mm-hmm. Bruce starts the first half and then Mark takes over for the second. They all five do the stage battle yeah, that, that's end, such a weird, weird photo thing. um is there is there a photo of that yes there is like i have not seen that i've got that one pulled up and uh if you check if follow us on instagram the uh the something good network we post a lot of fun kiss stuff on there and i'll, I'll post that in the stories but yeah you can actually see a photo of all five members giving a bow that's at the very end of bizarre. the show think about that that's the only time that ever happened yeah I guess, so because they just swapped out guitar players mid-set Huh. Yeah, that's really weird. Uh, so that just shows how confusing this thing, this whole thing is. Uh, November 28th and 29th, Poughkeepsie, New York, and Binghamton, New York, uh, are both full shows with Mark. Yep. And a bootleg recording of the Binghamton show exists, and seems like he plays fine to me. I mean, it's still that style, but, you know, there's parts where he's playing, where he's not overplaying. He plays the Detroit Rock City you know, so yeah, perfect, which I mean, it obviously wasn't going to be a problem for him, but he, yeah. you know, he's not stepping on it. Um, like previous guitarists would, but this is the era when they, of course they're playing super fast. Apparently they think the idea of speed equals excitement. So they're playing everything really fast. in yeah. this era. Uh, the next date is in, uh, after these two shows with Mark, isn't uh, they get like, I guess a day or two off. They play December 2nd in Indianapolis and mm-hmm. Bruce is back. And then a week later, uh, Mark St. John is fired, and he leaves the next day. Well, I forgot to write down that I think it was Indianapolis or Terre Haute, Indiana. So think about that. You're in the Midwest, and it's like, well, time to, time to go home. <laughs> I'll get, you a, get you a plane ticket. And on December 8th in Detroit is the day Bruce Kulik is officially hired. 
as a uh, support musician in this duo called Kiss. <laughs> you're, you're trying to work your way around saying member. <laughs> and the show that night is professionally videotaped at Cobo Hall for MTV, um, which becomes the Animalized live home video. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is this the era of a uh, headband, Gene? Well, yeah. Cap, did you look up this video before the show? I didn't get a chance to look it up, no. Well, see, I want to... Look I, it up. Look it so, up. Oh, boy. On oh, boy. YouTube. <laughs> it's just a click away. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I. This is the first time I've watched this show since maybe, oh, God, 2014, 13, somewhere in that area. And I forgot how short of a set they were playing because not only were they playing fast... The the set list that was recorded for the uh, Kobo uh, Theater was, or that's what they have listed there. So I guess they wanted to call it something different about them. No, uh, it's they're playing well, Kobo the Co- Arena. Yeah, well, it's Kobo their, Hall. Yeah, it's usually the arena. that's the yeah. place. But but Detroit Rock City, Cold Gin, Creatures of the Night, Fits Like a Glove, Heavens on Fire, Thrills in the Night, Under the Gun, War Machine, Young and Wasted, Love It Loud, Still Love You, Love Gun, Black Diamond, Lick It Up, Rock and Roll All Night. In the grand scheme of things, even with previous tours, that's a pretty short set. How long does it run? Like 90 minutes. Roughly, but I mean, it feels like even the 70s set had a little longer. No, the 70s sets were actually shorter. Their sets in the 70s, a lot of those seem to run about a minute or I guess it just felt fast because of how fast they were playing. And they're not playing any, uh, you know, having any extended drum solos or guitar solos or anything like that. No, there definitely are. Uh, Bruce Bruce had a little time to shine. Eric, of course, had his little drum solo thing because he really implemented the gong. Peter only really used his right at the very end of God of Thunder leading back in but Eric kind of at least in that video footage used his gong quite a few times I was going to say speaking of Eric you know we made fun of like uh, 80s cliches and stuff like that if you watch the Heavens on Fire video Eric Carr's got like a million drums around him meanwhile on the record it's just like the cymbals the kick and the snare and maybe a tom Yeah, I I hate that about 80s it's got to look impressive. What did you think of that video, though, Russ? I, you know, I don't have a very fond recollection. You didn't rewatch of it. it for I this? Mean, no, I, I remember watching it. When it, it got a lot of airplay back in the day. I was surprised. And um, so I saw it a lot when it was on MTV. Um, yeah, you know, I, it seemed like I watched the premiere of it. January 26, 85. Of the Heavens on Fire video? Oh, no. The, this oh, Animalize. No, 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 no. That's, that's what oh, I was talking about. I'm, oh, talking I'm about sorry. The, I'm talking about the full I, Animalize I video. Yeah, Animal well, Live. Um, I've actually, yeah, Animal I Live. Bought that, <laughs> I bought that the following summer. I was able to find it for like, I want to say I found it for like $10, which was Ooh. back then. That was really good price for a mm-hmm. video cassette. Because fun fact, when videotapes were really coming out, they were like, especially some of the more in-demand movies were close to like 50 and 60 bucks, weren't they? Uh, movie, some movies were like a hundred bucks. Wow. Yeah. So, so owning just a single VH, uh, not to trail off too far, but that's where a lot of the Disney shit started really coming from because those from the vault Disney movies yeah. would sometimes go for like 150 bucks sometimes. And it was just because they could sell it and they would sell the hell out. Speaking of movies, uh, December 14th, Mm-hmm. the premiere of the movie runaway opens nationwide. Good, good segue. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I watched this at the theater. I went and watched it. I see, I've yet to watch the movie. I liked it. It was fun. It's not like a great movie. Yeah. 
but it's a fun little popcorn movie. It's a fun movie to watch now on a rainy sun, uh, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Now, how did it feel being a Kiss fan and this being fresh? Now, now, this isn't even like for a fan like me that has like time and perspective to understand. Oh, Gene did some movies. You're a Kiss fan that only watch an it, album yeah. that only an album earlier did you discover they took off the makeup. Now you're seeing Gene Simmons on the silver screen as a movie actor. Did that really resonate? Did that hit? That's one thing I've always been curious about. Well, I was, let's see, if this is December of 84, so I was 13 years old. Yeah, and that's even a big age for that to yeah, happen. So I was pretty impressed by it. I, you know, I was excited to watch it. Um, Gene's pretty good as like a you know smarmy villain you know it's a little hammy yeah did they really promote it as gene simmons is in this movie it was it was it was it was oh and you know it's it was a tom Selleck movie right tom Selleck. he was red hot then right the villain is gene simmons of the rock group kiss okay so he wasn't like a big there was there was an era there in the 80s where you had several rock stars making transitions into film to some degree Tina Turner was in the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome the following summer. See, Mick Fleetwood's Sting, in Running Man. <laughs> well, Sting was in um, uh, uh, Dune. Dune, yeah. With, uh, I was trying to think of David Lynch's name. It was in David Lynch's Dune. Um, so, you know, you had a little bit of this going on. And by this kiss, by this point, Kiss isn't anything. Mm. There's just of no consequence whatsoever. I just didn't know if that was like so something was hard on, to fully wrap your after, head around. It was an afterthought for most people. It was, an, it was just sort of a footnote. Oh, you know, the villain was, oh, Gene Simmons was the the tongue guy in Kiss. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was talking about like on a personal level for you, not the, not the mass market, but well, for you. It felt like in that era to me that... You know, I was now part of something that was very small again. Kiss, mm. you know, there were a lot of people that thought Kiss had broken up and were gone. Okay. And this was sort of reintroduced. Oh, Kiss are still around? You know? And it's like, oh, well, they, I can remember a girl at school had a magazine. She's looking at their picture in a, one of those rock magazines. And she's going, you can see where they got cancer on their faces from all that makeup. Ah! <laughs> you know, and it's like, just Do you stuff. think it's some weird back doorway the movie helped keep kiss relevant because no. that that's kind of what i was getting at though no no, no it's kind of no. like stunt casting it's kind of like you know i was a kiss fan when i watched uh, the uh the movie the new guy where gene simmons has like one bit part in it where he plays a preacher and uh his dead giveaway that it was gene simmons was that he had a, a part where he stuck his tongue out mm-hmm. yeah and it was like one of those it was one of those moments where it's just like oh it's that guy from kiss you know and at the time you know nobody nobody my age was talking about kiss going on tour or anything like that so well i think it's interesting to note that if if he had gotten better notice or this this movie had been a bigger hit and it led to more offers from hollywood to go do more he this might have been his you know he was looking at he's looking for a golden parachute yeah I, absolutely i don't doubt that for a this second this could have been his last record you know and all of the, these could have been possibly their last record but they, you know and but uh, it's not what happened runaway wasn't a big hit and animalize was a big enough hit to, to keep just, them interested. to keep them and to keep them in the i guess in if not the black, what would be a color between red and black? The gray. Brown? The gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, December 14th in Cleveland, Ohio, live shots for a planned Thrills in the Night video are shot. And additional footage was shot on a day off on the 16th. Um, I don't know what happened to this video because apparently there's two versions of it. Mm-hmm. One that never aired. And I don't remember the one that aired actually ever airing. I'm like, 
this to me seems Wasn't like, it like a version with suits or something. I remember I, vaguely hearing about that. I don't that. know. I think so. I think they're like playing pimps or something. Yeah. I don't know. I just read different things. I've never obviously I've never seen it. I think I've seen like one like photo like because you know they'll do like photo tests before they do like a video shoot, and I feel like I've seen like one or two like set photos of like them in suits and stuff like getting ready for a shot. I, I'm just surprised that this song didn't get more play. Coming on, if, if, if Heaven's mm-hmm. on Fire did well, it usually lends to logic that they would be able to springboard a second. And though it's not an exciting second. chorus, it's still a sing-along. It, it's, it's, well, it just seems like to me for that era, that style of music would have had a little more, it was commercial enough that it could have made... Uh, more inroads than it did. Do you think so, they just weren't hip on the payola? Because we already know back in the day, that's the only reason they were able to get to a certain point was due to all the payola. Well, Maybe they think, just weren't playing into that I, anymore. I, I don't know. We could only speculate to that, but it just seems to me that this could have done better. But I don't recall this video ever airing. I don't. I don't know that I've. I don't think I've ever seen it. I've, I've seen either. it once. I think, and it, it, you know, it doesn't even belong to Kiss. It doesn't. They don't. That's why it's never been issued on any of their home videos, or DVDs, or anything like that. Interesting. I think Was you it? can find it on YouTube. Yeah. I think it's just they've just uh, edited different concert shots together. I think they they filmed some stuff for this, and then they used some of the stuff from the Detroit MTV thing. Animal Live. Animal <laughs> Live. Uh, what did you, you? What day did you say that premiered on MTV? January twenty seventh. I just moved away from it. Hold on, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, I just moved away. Because the, the version that's on MTV was only an hour long. Yes. It's even shorter. And but I there remember is a full release it. on YouTube now. I didn't see it when it first aired, but I remember seeing it on MTV at some point the following spring or summer. And I was pretty excited to watch it. It came on like 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Oh, well, that's a good time for that to come on. Yeah. Order some pizza. Well, yeah, I, I was thirteen. I wasn't get mom to order you some pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Mom, mom did not approve. But. <laughs> okay, a pizza or kiss. I'm going to talk about this here a little bit because I know a little bit about it, and I'll, okay. expl- I'll qualify it. January third in Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, Crocus takes over as the opening act. Screaming in the night. A local lighting technician named John Addington. Falls from the light rig. I've heard about this. And he hits the barricade on the way down. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, so... He ends up dying. Oh, yikes. Now, this is where I've got some uh, additional insight. And I, I have an uncle who I've not seen or spoken to in 30 years. Right. More than 30 years. And he, when he's my... He's my dad's half-brother, so he's much younger. He's more closer to my age than he is my dad's age. And he's probably 15 years older than me. Um, I can remember when he was a teenager, he was like this junior league paramedic guy in our hometown in Virginia. And he followed that as a career path. And um, by the mid-'80s, he he was living in Greenville, South Carolina, and he was the head of the entire – paramedic thing whatever that is you know he was like the top guy and um he's got a lot of grizzly stories a lot of really bet. jeez I, I know a mm. few paramedic friends and oh my god yeah. just anytime i'm bored i'm like what happened today <laughs> I mean, he's got some he had some crazy stories they used to freak me out you know talking about like i won't i won't go there right um but he ran this call 
Because I really? asked him, I'd already heard this story. I knew it had happened. I'd heard it or a rumor of it. And I asked him, you know, and, and my memory of him telling me the story was that he thought that the guy would have survived. But when they came up to the arena, you know, kids are coming up to the ambulance and, oh, you know, no. and kids are laying down in front of it to keep them from moving Why? and stuff because kids are stupid. Because I was going to say, we unfortunately saw the same kind of stuff recently with the Astro World thing when paramedics were trying to get in to help people. Kids were getting on top of the yeah, ambulance and jumping said, on it. And exactly it's like, the kind of dumb shit that was going on that night. See, y'all, it's not the current generation. Bullshit happened in every decade. Yeah. yeah. So, but you know, that's only my again. We can't say that for sure. But, and, but, still, but that, that, I think it's. I think out of respect for this guy, I want to repeat his name, John Addington. I mean, um, you know, that's a that's a sad thing to have happen. Yeah. And you know, um, kind of scary when you think about it. That's you go to a show and you watch someone basically get killed right in, on stage in front of you. Well, it, I don't think he landed on stage. I think he landed in the pit between the barricade Ooh. and the stage. I'm not 100% on yeah. that, but that's the way I've understood. That's the way I read it. But, mm. So I Damn. just think it's an interesting note that my uncle actually had a firsthand involvement. In that. Yeah, really. Uh, the tour winds up on March 29th in the Brindenburg. Easy for me to say. Brindenburn Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, right across the river from New York City, and about a million miles away from Super Kiss's multiple sellout nights at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> with an with a opener that's. Uh, a little bit more hardcore than makeup era kiss at the time. Although, would this not be the same uh, place that they would record the final kiss pay per view at? Probably. I mean, it's a it's a, a lot of bands play there. It's a. I don't know if it's a it's. I wouldn't call it a secondary market at all because it's a major arena, and again, mm-hmm. it's right across the river. You just still had to take a jab, is all it is. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> um, there are a handful of sellout nights on this tour, but the average attendance is about 6,000 people. Um, they're falling into a rut as a marginally successful mid-level hard rock act. But it pays the bills. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> so this, kind of- is, this is where they're at. But, you know, this has been a successful run. Mm-hmm comparatively to what they have done for the previous two albums. They're about as cool as Wasp at this point. <laughs> well, Wasp aren't a headlining band at this point. Kiss are still at least, they're they're getting by. You know, uh, promoters are a little iffy. I mean, the last two tours have been really bad, but mm-hmm. I guess because you've had a, a handful of sellouts along this route, that it helps kind of and they got a hit on the radio and they got a minor hit here and they got a comp you know they're building more confidence but this isn't anything like kiss like classic era kiss where they were the shit they were king shit of fuck mountain would you say that now they're they're like i said they're kind of just a marginal marginally successful mid-level band which i mean it was is you know for any other band would be great yeah but being in in a certain level at one point and now you're brought down to another chris lint writes in his book on this at some point on this tour they were talking oh there's seven thousand people tonight and gene just kind of goes well whoop the fucking do 
Which it's, is, a, you know, and you're just like, fuck, something, man. Something to say, but, uh, you know, it's hard to be, you know, at the top of the mountain and then, you know, fall off and then work to get back. It's a long way down, and it's going to be a long way back up, and there's only one thing that puts them back where they once were. The but, kiss exposed to D, uh, VHS. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't Lick It Up, and it wasn't Revenge. <laughs> now, and not to get too far ahead, I feel like this is the last little gasp of Kiss at least trying to be genuine. This whole next record cycle almost feels like a parody in hindsight. Because, again, we'll, we'll discuss it in a couple weeks on here on No Time to Turn. But think about the songs that became hits and the and the VHS home movie they made afterward. Kiss almost yeah, turned the, into I a can, parody. Okay, I can see that with the exposed home video. But we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. I, I think this whole era, though, is going to feel very much like the Paul Stanley solo era. For for you know not the Paul Stanley solo album of seventy eight but you know and and again it just goes back to saying his idea of Kiss as a band it's not a band it's a duo and it's less a duo than him working alone with a less involved second hand partner that shares in the name and then just you know studio musicians and I hate to denigrate them as such they play live but they're just they're not. You know, they're not. They're hard guns. They're hard guns. They're not part of the. They're not really part of the band. Yeah. And I'm not shitting on them for that. I'm just saying that's just the reality of what the situation is. And I Bruce mean, always seemed at least content with that, even in like recent interviews. Well, that's he's, what he's always done. Yeah. yeah. The only band experience he's ever participated in that was a, a commercially viable act was Blackjack, which wasn't commercially viable because they didn't have any hits. Yeah. But who was the lead singer in Blackjack? Michael Bolton. And what happened to him? Became mm-hmm. a mega superstar on his own. So, you know, but it, it, Bruce Killick has always played as an auxiliary musician. That's what he does. He's doing it to this day. He plays with Grand Funk Railroad. He's yep. an excellent musician and he knows that role and he does it really well. I'm not putting him down for it at all. But the idea of Kiss as a band, that's laughable. They aren't a band all the way through this era and it doesn't matter what those guys contribute even as songwriters mm-hmm. they're still contributing as uh, for example my father created a a, 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 a um, worked for a food service production company and created a cutter okay uh, to cut what they called straight wall onion rings which they couldn't mass produce onion rings back in the day. If you went in the seventies and got onion rings at Burger King, it was like an onion paste or whatever. They couldn't they couldn't mass produce an onion ring. He figured out a way to mass produce onion rings for fast food service, but his name isn't even on the patent because he's working for a bigger company. Oh, and they wow. own it. He was working for them. He developed. So he never got a material. cut of it. No, he got a bonus. I'm sure he got a nice bonus, but he never. Yeah, he should have. Damn. You know, if he had invented that on his own. I would be. You wouldn't know us. I wouldn't know. I got Ray Kroc. I'd be rich, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the way this works. And then, like, you know, Bruce Killick contributed to Kiss, and I'm sure he'd got some publishing. I I imagine so. Yeah, he continues to write. But I don't know that he, you know, but by and large, you'll see through this era, their chief song, co songwriters aren't the guys in the band, quote unquote band. The guys that they've hired, it's outside guys Desmond Child, John John Bivar. Mitch Weissman, you know, and to a point, Gene Simmons, and Gene yeah, Simmons. sometimes. Yeah. So I mean, he's almost know. an outside entity at this point. But this is the album. This is the album. Whether we like to admit it or not, whether Kiss fans want to admit it or not, Kiss nerds, they all say that you know, there's that debate. Did Vinny save Kiss? Did you know? No, this was the album that saved Kiss. 
more so than anything. This is the album that brought them back. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, but if they didn't have Lick It Up to build, Lick It Up wasn't that successful. No. Everyone seems to think that it was this great, successful, and brought all this attention to the band for taking their makeup off. We talked about it in the last episode. Didn't draw shit. Didn't draw Tencent and Chinese money. It didn't do anything for them. And but this album, for some reason... They did. And it was the cheetah print. It and was you, Mark St. John that saved Kiss. <laughs> and you, you say save Kiss, that only brought him back to that mid tier level. Just, and it just brought him it back. Brought them back yeah. from, they, they flatlined. Yeah. And, and yeah. they finally And they're still on life support, but at least the heart's beating again. And if they had not, if they had not sued their record company, they probably would have just stopped. You know, or if they had, or if they had won that all the money that they had hoped to win, which you talked about in the Killers episode, yep. I think. Yep. You know, if they had, you know, they came away, they sued for six and a half million dollars and came away with five hundred thousand, yeah. split yeah. like seven <laughs> ways or something. You know, if they had won that, they would have had, they would have had a nest egg, and they could have gone on to pursue other interests. But now they don't, and not only that, their record label has bitten back down on them, and they owe the record label money for all the advances that they have not yet recouped. They have to keep going. They have no choice. Well, Paul's going to conquer the world. He's going to climb the mountain, Russ. I He's going to do it. He's, He's going to win. Enough. He's into the fire. <laughs> He's into the fire, but then... And under the gun. <laughs> and, and, and if I were to close this in a cheesy way, it's enough to drive you insane. And put you in an asylum. Oh. <laughs> Which we'll talk about on the next episode of No Time to Turn. Good night. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month. At patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork. <laughs>